So this is an honor for me to speak to you today. And you are here because you are godly women. Um, and you want to be godly women. From the outset, I want you to understand that I'm on this journey with you. I've been blessed and instructed and really challenged as I prepared for this session. So I'll try to keep a clear line of demarcation between what the scripture says and my own opinions, which really have less than little value in comparison, right? Uh, this morning we'll be looking at a few passages in scripture. It's pretty uh, weighty. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Thessalonians 5, where we'll begin. <clears throat> but first, while you're doing that, for some background, for you ladies visiting, uh, we've been doing a verse-by-verse -verse study of 1 Thessalonians in Every Woman's Hope this year. The Thessalonian church was founded by the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, on his Paul's second missionary journey back in uh, AD 50. And after a forced and premature separation from all these young believers that he'd led to the Lord, Paul wrote these first of two letters to encourage them, to comfort them, and to strengthen this healthy and growing church. Both letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, have heavy eschatological themes. That means um, they talk about the end times. Uh, because God is faithful and good to tell us what's going to happen in the future. Nonetheless, um, okay, <laughs> this is where we're going to be going today. And I, frankly, I just struggled and uh, thinking I didn't want this to be dark. And the day of the Lord is by nature a very dark uh, season of the world. And I thought, well, these ladies are going to be under their tables. This is a spring lunch after all. Um, and so I'm well aware that this is a heavy topic. Um, but, and I'm also aware that it's a huge topic for one hour, right? Nonetheless, we're going to narrow our focus to what the day of the Lord means to us and how we should be preparing for it now. So, as we start, I just have a question for you. Have any of you heard of a black swan event? Anybody? Nobody? Well, good, it's something new. Okay. The phrase black swan dates back to second century Rome, but it was popularized only in 2007 by a Wall Street trader just prior to the financial crisis in 2008. A black swan is defined as an extremely rare event with severe consequences. And of course, he was talking forward to when everything crashed. Um, so a rare event, severe consequences, and what's more, nobody saw it coming. The metaphor has since been expanded to events outside the financial markets, and one American statistician has said that a small number of black swans explains almost everything in our world. From the success of ideas and religions to the dynamics of historical events, and even to elements in our own personal lives. COVID, okay, COVID, for example, was a black swan. It was rare. It was severe, and nobody saw it coming. Okay, there's truth to this, yes? 
Uh, many of us can remember, for example, where we were when the Twin Towers fell in New York City. Um, we can maybe remember where we were standing when we received that awful phone call with bad news. As Christians, um, well, let me just say this. We remember these black swans because they usher in catastrophic change that shape our lives. Today we call it a new normal, right? That term has been uh, popularized. The book of Ecclesiastes says it like this. It says, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Right, so that might not make a lot of sense to us because if a big tree falls down, we call a tree service, they can chop it up with a chainsaw and pull it away. But where we were in tribal village, and in these cultures uh, in, <clears throat> in Asia, in the Middle East, when a big tree fell, it lay there. Uh, nobody could move it. And so in Taliyabo, it was all over the place. We were in the rainforest, and there'd be big, huge trees that would fall, and the whole village would... People would build their houses around this tree. They would have a path that would go around the tree because there, wherever the tree fell, it lie there. All right? So it's the unpredictability of black swans that has intrigued me since I first heard that term, mostly because it points to the discomfort of natural man not knowing and not being in control and not seeing it coming makes people very, very uncomfortable. As Christians, we have a different perspective, don't we? We know that our God is in charge uh, and that he's in control of all things. And even when our path is hidden from us, uh, just knowing that our kind God has our future in his hand lessens the blow, right? Lessens the blow for us. We are very blessed in this way. Well, today we're going to talk about the greatest, most catastrophic, most devastating black swan that has ever or will ever occur in our universe. And that is the great and terrible day of the Lord. Let's look at our text, and that's 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3, and I'll read. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, hey, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Verse 1 speaks of times and seasons of the day of the Lord. That word times refers to a duration or a big stretch of time of the day of the Lord. And the word seasons, and it's better translated maybe in some of your Bibles as epochs, refers to the events or particular characteristics within that stretch of time. Okay, we'll clear this up in a bit. But what does the day of the Lord mean? The day of the Lord is used multiple times in both the Old and the New Testament, and it always refers to judgment. Judgment upon a sinful and rebellious world. Judgments both past and future. Um, it is referred to as the day of doom, the day of vengeance, the day of wrath, and the day of visitation. Speaking of future judgment in the book of Revelation, it is called the, day, the great day of God Almighty. 
When we hear then day of the Lord, we should always think judgment, okay? The terrible judgment of God. I'm just going to read a couple little verses here, Joel 2. 30 and 31, this is God speaking, and he says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. This is talking future here. Uh, Excuse me, that's the wrong passage. Joel 2, 30 to 31 says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We'll actually read that passage in the book of Revelation written a century later. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, 7, and 10. We studied this um, uh, this year, at least, read through it. Uh, the second letter to the Second Thessalonians says this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God when the Lord Jesus oh, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. So two separate audiences here. The Thessalonian believers, they had been taught about the day of the Lord from the apostle Paul. So they knew that it was going to come unexpectedly when no one had time to prepare. They were fully aware, the apostle says, that the day of the Lord would come, what, like a thief in the night. Suddenly, unexpectedly, and unannounced. Certainly a black swan. Okay, Jesus illustrates this suddenness of his coming. And these are Jesus' words in Matthew by comparing it to the days of Noah. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it were in the days of Noah, he's comparing this back to the great flood, right? So it will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay. So the people of Noah's day who were destroyed by the flood viewed themselves... And this I find just amazing. They viewed themselves as just ordinary people carrying out the affairs of everyday life, right? They were transacting business. They were pursuing life as though they had all the time in the world. But they were blind 
and apathetic to their own spiritual condition before God, and they failed to consider what God thought of them. Instead, they lived as though there were no God. They were unmoved by the building of the ark. They ignored the warnings of God and through Noah. And when judgment came, it came fast. And it was too late for a change of mind. As Jesus said, the people did not understand until judgment fell and then they perished under its weight. Rare, severe, and they didn't see it coming. It was a black swan. Okay, moving down to verse 3, Thessalonians 5. While people are saying there is peace and security, can you see the similarities here? Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Isn't it just, I mean, I know that this is heavy text. It's not a feel-good message, I guess, although it'll get much better, I promise. But it's something how truthful God is. He doesn't shield us. Uh, His word is given to help us and to prepare us and to move us uh, toward himself. And I just, I love this about scripture. He never, he exposes sin (laughs) in his people too. You know, he's very, very faithful and true um, to tell us and to guide us. Okay, so this is the deadly end of being unprepared. The them sudden destruction will come upon them marks the ones who, on whom destruction falls, the them. Okay, these are the earth dwellers called in the book of Revelation who have spurned the warnings of judgment and who have rejected offers of grace. So it's talking about the unredeemed here. The visions of peace that they had were nothing more than a delusion Visions of peace like we hear today, right? Everything's going to be okay. Um, Sudden destruction, though, does come upon them, and they will not escape. Okay, let's talk a little bit about those epochs in the day of the Lord. Uh, We talked about the times and seasons or epochs earlier in verse 1, defining an epoch as a particular event within a big space of time. So if the day of the Lord stretches from one end to the other, in the middle of that are particular events that take place, or epochs, right? So, for example, the day of the Lord uh, would be identified by the epochs or particular events within it, such as the seven-year tribulation or the abomination that makes desolate, which happens right in the middle uh, by the Antichrist or the second coming of Jesus at the end, or the ushering in of his 1,000-year reign as king, or the great white throne judgment at the end of that 1,000 years. All of this is revealed to us really clearly in the scripture, uh, and they're all epochs within the day of the Lord. Uh, does that make sense to you? I hope, <laughs> hope I'm not losing you. Okay, I'm going to do my best to summarize here those major events, some of them, uh, within this prophetic period, and then draw from that and find out what God wants us to do with this knowledge. Okay, number one, the day of the Lord is inaugurated with the rapture or the catching up of his church. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, I'll read this. 
verse 16, it says this, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry. This is not his second coming. This is prior. Okay, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Okay? So we studied this, didn't we, in Every Woman's Hope. We went through this uh, pretty clearly. This event is not a judgment, but rather it's going to unite the church, both the living and the dead, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this could be considered an epoch within that stretch of time of the day of the Lord. Okay, then follows a seven-year tribulation period where God intervenes in human history, causing wave after wave of... um, ever-increasing judgments. The seven years is divided up into two three-and-a-half-year sections. And right in the middle is called the mid-tribulation, and there's a big change that takes place at that time. The first three-and-one-half years in Revelation, Jesus Christ is found to be the only one worthy to open the scroll, right? We sing about that on Sundays. Um, You are er worthy to open that scroll. And on the scroll is the deed, the title deed to the universe. And it is sealed with seven seals. And each seal had to be peeled open in order for the scroll to be open. And Jesus was the only one able to open these seals. And as they are peeled back, each seal unleashes uh, judgment. Now, bear with me here a new demonstration of God's judgment on the earth. And the seventh seal, that final seal, when it's opened, it unleashes another seven judgments. And they're called the trumpet judgments. They're literally announced by an angel blowing a trumpet in heaven, and then the judgment is unleashed. So then you'd have the first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet, all the way to the end. And then when the seventh trumpet is opened, it unleashes seven more judgments called the bowl judgments. Bowls of wrath pouring out on... Now, this is a culmination of millennia of long-suffering of our God where he pours out vengeance on the earth for every murder, every rape, every evil thing that's been done, every injustice imaginable. All right, God has stored up. It talks about his storing up at wrath for the proper time, and this is that time. Right? So you've got the seven seals, the seventh seal opening seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet opening up the seven bowl judgments. All right, so here are the specifics. We're not going to obviously go through all this, but just the seal judgments, just to give you a picture of what we're talking about. The first four seals, you've probably heard this, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Someone made a movie of it, and they've done paintings of this over the years. But it opens, uh, and all this is written very clearly in the book of Revelation. The first seal, when it's opened, is a white horse with a rider. And you can read that in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. These riders are not human, but rather they're forces. They're things that are happening on earth. They're not, it's not a literal horse and rider. And it was a white horse, a white horse that signified peace. The whole world at that time will be brought under global control, Uh, ushering in a period of unprecedented peace. This is going to be a forced control. 
uh, the second, and, but it won't last very long. The second seal then is the red horse, which signifies blood, and that is a worldwide war. So you've got this long period of peace, then you have a long period of worldwide war. Um, and, you know, we just read there in, in Thessalonians, just as a side note, but where it said people were saying peace and safety, but sudden destruction comes. That's talking about the first and second seal here. During the world peace, um, and it's, it's called a conquering peace, so it's a forced peace to bring the whole world in line. All right, there was peace, and people were saying there's peace and security, but then sudden destruction came with that second seal, uh, the worldwide war, the red horse. Third seal was the black horse, which was famine. And that makes sense, right? We see this in Ukraine. And there's war, there's hunger, because the crops are gone, right? People can't work anymore. There's war. So the world war destroys the food supply. So there's great food scarcities during this time and rationing. The fourth seal was a pale green horse, and that's death. And Revelation 6, 8 reads like this, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades, which means the grave, followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So those are the four ways people died in those days. A fourth of the world's population resulting from this great war and the famine that followed. And then the fifth seal was the cry of the martyrs. Uh, This is found in Revelation um, 6, 1 through 10. All right, so these martyrs would have been murdered during this first part of the tribulation period. Here's what it says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those, this would have been in heaven, right? Under the altar of God, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So these were two martyrs. They had cried out, with a loud voice saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And listen carefully here. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had. So, God in his plan and in his wisdom had determined a number of martyrs that must be executed before the vengeance would come on them. All right, the sixth seal um, was great cosmic disturbances. Okay, so that, quote, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black. Okay, we read about that in Joel, right? Thousands of years before, probably from the earthquake and volcanoes and ash coming up to the sun. Turned the sun dark, and the full moon became like blood. It was a blood moon. And I'm skipping here. Every mountain and island was removed from its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the... Um, a rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves, calling, hide us from the 
face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come who can stand. All right, this point, they are realizing that it was God who is the actor. This is the first time. Then after these things, God anointed 144,000 redeemed Jews, 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes, and how only God could know where they are, right? Because they have been scattered and dispersed ever since uh, the Roman, the great dispersion under the Romans. So um, God knew, though. God knew, and he put together 12,000 men, and he marked them with a seal on their foreheads. This was for protection. And this great army of redeemed Jews went forth, protected by God, to carry out a mission of unprecedented evangelism and resulting in the salvation of multitudes. All right, the seventh seal was the last seal, right? And there was silence in heaven as the seventh trumpet judgments began to be unleashed. And these have even greater intensity than the seal judgments, where there's vegetation struck by hail and fire, and the seas and fresh water rivers and streams are struck, and where God supernaturally decreases the intensity of celestial bodies, that would be the sun, moon, and stars by, it says, one-third, which would cause a rapid decrease in temperature on the earth. At this time, there were three terrible woes announced by an angel on the inhabitants of the earth because of the severity of the final three trumpet judgments. And Satan is unleashed at this time. And the Antichrist called the beast in Revelation and the false prophet are revealed. All this takes place during the first three and one half years of the tribulation. Okay, the second three and a half years, and we won't go far here, is called the Great Tribulation, which begins with the Antichrist defiling the Temple of Israel and setting himself up as God to be worshipped. And he marked his worshippers on the hand or on the forehead with his mark, and those without the mark could not buy or sell. And all refusing to worship the image of the beast would be destroyed. So at this time, there was total global control. Then the seven bowl judgments are unleashed. Quoting from Revelation 13, 5 through 10, the beast, Antichrist, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war with the saints and to conquer them. So this great number of people who had come to Christ under the 144,000 were murdered. And all authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation who dwell on the earth and will worship it. And everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life was slain. Okay. And then a, a fantastic passage here uh, that was so moving to me and challenged me so when I studied it. <clears throat> 
And it's a word to the martyrs or to those who would be being martyred. And, um, and, and here's what it says. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be set, slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So God is calling the people during this, these tribulation saints, to persevere. Persevere in faith. Do not rebel. They were to be martyred. Uh, God's people here were called to endurance and faith, and their deaths filled up that number who would die as the martyrs under the altar had died. And after these things, the climax comes when the Antichrist and the armies of the world, they gather to make war on Jerusalem at the great battle of Armageddon. We've heard of this. And the tribulation and the great... uh, uh, the tribulation and the great tribulation would be epochs within this span of the day of the Lord. And then comes the return of Jesus Christ and his judgment on those dwelling on the earth. Um, I can, because it's such a beautiful picture, <laughs> I'm going to read it. Uh, the heavy part is over. Revelation 19:11 through 16 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. All right, he doesn't come as a lamb this time, does he? He doesn't come as a lamb to shed his blood. He comes as a warrior. Uh, he is clothed, his eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many crowns and he's clothed in a robe dipped with blood and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then comes the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ, the King. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. Following that, these other epochs, the great white throne judgment. This is the second judgment of Revelation 20. And then number six, all things are made new with the dissolution of the known universe and the recreation of a new universe ushering in the eternal state. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Well, that was the introduction. (laughs) I hope, again, it wasn't too heavy for you. But ladies, I thought so hard about this. And I realized that it's it's the written word, right? It's the written word. And God himself has given it to us because there's a reason. He wants us to know. Right? He wants us to know. Um... Now let's talk about what this means to us and let's go back to our text in 1 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4. Everything changes. The whole tenor changes and the apostle says, but you, you are not darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. 
let's talk about this great contrast between the children of light and day and those of the night or darkness. Notice the language difference, but you, brethren. Okay, these are family words, right? Family words. I've been reading from the ESV, which uses the word children, children of light and children of the day. Uh, But the best translation here is actually sons, uh, sons of light and sons of day, because it's it's actually a masculine pronoun. Now, this is an interesting word because son in Hebrew is a term that denotes family, denotes kinship, right? But not necessarily a biological kinship but rather a kinship of nature. So, for example, like the sons of Abraham, all right, or the son of man. Uh, there's no biological kinship between Christ the Lamb being the son of man and humanity, but it's, a, it's an identification, it's a kinship by nature. Um, or when it talks to us and it says, um, you are all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That is a kinship in nature. So here the words sons of light and sons of the day would mean like belonging to the light and belonging to the day. Hence the title on your program. Uh, These words mean that spiritual light is the pervading element of our character. Okay? Spiritual light is the pervading character of every believing woman. Um, can I ask you, do you, assuming you're a believing woman and that you love the Lord, you love our Lord Jesus, do you look at yourself as belonging to the day and belonging to light? Or like Rachel saying, lay it all down, are we shamed? and guilt-ridden and anxious at times. Not all the time, but these things can plague us, right? But, ladies, um, being belonging to the light and belonging to the day is our true identity. It's our true nature. It's who we are. And it's healthy for us. It's healthy for us to look at ourselves in that light because it is our identity. It's how the Father sees us because of our redemption in Jesus Christ. We can contrast this now with who we're not. Okay, we are not darkness for the day of the Lord to surprise us as a thief. We are not of the night or of darkness. John 8.12, I'll read a couple verses here too corroborate this, right? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but has the light of life. Colossians 1.13 And he's delivered us, believers, from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And lastly, 1 Peter 2.9 You believers. You ladies are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. Okay, so darkness is uh, emblematic, right? It's symbolic of the condition of the unredeemed. 
that moral and spiritual estrangement and ignorance um, of the unbeliever that has penetrated their heart and minds and blinding them to the spiritual realities, making them oblivious to future judgment. Okay, and that's kind of what we see in the world around us, oblivious. Um, and it's as God begins to pull a person in this condition and flood their lives with light that they can be saved. Uh, without a work of God, it would be impossible for us. Okay. So spiritual darkness then is the habitual sphere in which the man and woman of our world lives and moves whereas the opposite is true of us. Unbelievers immersed and asleep in darkness will be overtaken by the day of the Lord, but not you. You have nothing to fear from that day. Uh, Even those of us who are troubled and weak and faint-hearted and don't see victory of certain sin patterns in our life, Why? Because belonging to the light and belonging to the day is our true nature. It's our true identity. It's who we are growing into, right? But it's how the Father sees us even right now. So we are able to see and to spiritually discern and to walk freely in peace and freely in joy. One theologian said it like this, day is the realm in which we now live as light-possessed children of God. We belong to the day. So moving on, because this is so, and this is the very heart of what my words are to you and to me, right? That we need our true identity to govern our lives right now. This is such clear New Testament instruction for you and for me. Uh, And as we do this, we will see our lives change Ephesians 5.8 For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Okay, we can walk as children of light because we are light in the Lord, right? So we just have to begin to act like who we really are. That's a wonderful truth of sanctification in the New Testament. So just continuing on for this next little bit of... Uh, three verses that will close our passage. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be self-controlled or sober and cl- or clear-headed, right? That same word. Uh, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay? So that's kind of a mouthful. But it really is simple, the meaning. Uh, these verses cause us, they call us to two things, three things actually, but watchfulness, self-control, and to be armored, okay? Watchfulness, we are not like the others who sleep. Inattention to spiritual priorities is out of keeping for those who are not going to be subject to the day of the Lord of wrath, okay? Believers who would succumb to sleep become idle and expose themselves to dangers resulting from sin. 
but we shouldn't conduct ourselves in this way, right? Ladies, uh, we are not like those others who sleep, um, but there's no immunity against lethargy, okay? We have to watch for it. Uh, And I'm going to repeat here what I read earlier from Matthew 24, the words of Jesus, where he said, therefore, stay awake, stay awake, because you don't know what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, I want to clear something up right here because it was a great question by one of our group leaders at Every Woman's Hope. And she said, well, if believers aren't going to be going through the tribulation, then what are we to be ready for? And I thought this was really a good question because we're not preparing ourselves to go through all this persecution. What are we preparing ourselves for? And the, what, what we're to be preparing ourselves for is to meet the Lord. That's our, we're going to be seeing the Lord face to face. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but I, I did want to bring that up right here in case there's any kind of confusion. And then getting on to being armored, having put on the breast plate of faith and love, helmet of hope of salvation. These were military metaphors showing us that belonging to the day means, ladies, that we are not only to be watchers, but we are to be warriors equipped to resist the onslaught of the enemy. And that's why every Christian woman needs to put her armor on and keep it on so that she may always be on guard, always alert, always watching, always prepared verbally to tell the truth when it's asked of you, always prepared to receive from God's hand whatever he appoints regardless of the outcome, right? We need this armor, ladies. Okay? And I, again, want to come back to this. I want to bring this home here um, with one simple question, and that's why. Why do we need to do all this? Why all this instruction? Why be watchful? Why be self-controlled? Why be armored? We went through three chapters of instruction, right? In first, in first, in our text, in First Thessalonians, going through that letter. What's the purpose of it all, anyway? How should knowing that the day of the Lord is coming? and perhaps literally be at our door, how should it impact us? Well, it it needs to impact us like this. And I just mentioned this, but soon we'll be meeting Jesus Christ face to face. And we, each one of us individually, need to be ready for him. Okay? We need to prepare our lives for him. We need to wait for him We need to look for his return. We need to hope for him to come. And clearly the scriptures make this waiting for the return of Jesus as one of the chief objects of the Christian's watchfulness. Okay, and listen now in light of that to the words of these apostles because frankly this spoke to me and I have needs here. (laughs) Hopefully I'll have time to talk about Okay. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those 
who are eagerly waiting for him. Are we eagerly waiting for him? We need to be, right? Titus 2, 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to, we know this verse, right? Renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, which means now, right? Waiting for our blessed hope and for the appearing of God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a couple more. I'm not going to read them all, um, but I just... I couldn't stop writing them all down because, like I said, it really spoke to me. 1 Corinthians 1.7, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Christ. And here's one, 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him. That means live comfortably with him by not sinning all the time. That's what that means. So that when he appears, now listen, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Oh, wait. <laughs> this last one says we might be ashamed of ourselves uh, when we see him. And yes, this is possible, right? The scripture's telling us it can be possible and more likely probable if we're not preparing for our meeting with the Lord Christ. And I know all of you in this room, and me included, we think, right? We, we, we realize how short we've fallen at times. <clears throat> so we... This is a huge motivation given by, this is the Apostle John, the loving Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation, right? Uh, That calls us little children and tells us abide in him so that you won't shrink in shame when you see him. This is a huge motivation for godly living, right? So that when we look at Jesus, he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant to us. All right. So in closing, we have time for one more passage. And this, again, I love final words. But this is the final words written in scripture by the precious apostle Peter, who we will all meet one day. And I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 3 in its entirety, trusting that these dynamic words, truly inspired words, will inspire all of us and sink down deep and prepare us for our future, whatever it holds. This is my prayer for you and me. Okay, so this is 2 Peter 3, 1 through 18. And these are his last words. He closes his book with these and we don't hear from the apostle again. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord, our Savior, through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers are going to come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things are continuing on just as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. I'm talking about the flood here. And those of you who've studied the flood, remember when God created, he created waters above, a canopy and waters below, right? <clears throat> by these means, the waters above and below, the world then existed, was deluged with water 
and the earth perished. That's where all the water came from, right? It wasn't just water. It came up from the deep and it came down from heaven. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, listen carefully, are being stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so much for the Green New Deal here, right? Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day because he's eternal, right? He doesn't live like we live. Do not overlook <clears throat> this, okay? The Lord is not fulfill, uh, slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, here's these words again, will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, all the stars, all the heavenly bodies, <clears throat> will be... Um, burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be okay since you know this he's saying to us what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness Here's another repeat, right? Must be written by the same author. Waiting for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That will happen after he burns the old, okay? He'll create anew. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, this is your little verse there on the table, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blameless and at peace. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, okay? Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people in whatever form, okay? All you got to do is listen to the news. Listen to the news. The air of lawless people so that you lose your own stability. And here's his last words, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, I said at the beginning that I'm taking this journey with you and that's always the way it is, right? When you look into God's word, you just see so much, so much need in your own life. But what I was challenged with my own lack of waiting, my own lack of waiting. I mean, I aspire to this. I've always anticipated the Lord's come, but earnestly waiting, earnestly thinking about it, I fall short there. And as I started to think why, <clears throat> I did realize um, you know, we got it pretty good. We've got it really good, right? We have beautiful homes. Many of us, you know, we just, we just have so much blessing. Uh, God has, and this isn't sin to be blessed of God. Uh, this is not sin. But it does um, cause us to be a little bit more satisfied here and now than 
is healthy for us spiritually, right? That's why Christians under persecution are usually more spiritually in tuned and healthier than we are who live in abundance, right? And I think of, well, these verses all were written to a persecuted church because Rome was destroying Christians at the time. And remember, hauling them in front of the Colosseum in Rome uh, to play games with and watch their destruction. So they, they were being driven from their homes, driven from their lands, and so these people knew, you know, they knew um, they were longing for Christ to come back and avenge them. And I think, too, um, I've thought I've been moved lately by the Ukrainian church and by the Russians, probably because we have friends there. We have friends who are pastors that refuse to leave. They're still there in Kiev, ministering, sending aid out to the war zones. And if you want to know about this, you can go to our, our own LifeGate, uh, LifeGateWorldwide.org, sign up for email updates. But there's um, Ukraine. We've just got beautiful videos, testimonies, right from the front lines. And these these really just deal with the churches, right? The Christians and what's going on there and such distress that they're under. And, you know, these were a people, the Ukrainians, for one thing, the weather's really a lot like Minnesota. It's, you know, very similar. And this war started when? In March? All right, it was very cold. And do you realize that they lost their heat? Many of them didn't have heat. That's why you see them, they're all bundled up in coats. Can you imagine living without heat? And these women, when you first have a beautiful beautiful dress. They have very affluent culture before the invasion. And then they're standing out in these lines for days with their little pets on their backs and their babies and all bundled up. And I just think, oh, these women, you know, these women, they're in such duress. And the gospel is being shared with them. But I think they, you know, their aspirations for the future are all dead, right? It just went like that. It went like that. No one expected it. It was a true black swan to them, right? And so I've just been so moved by this. And, and I want, in my own heart, I don't want to spurn the blessing of God. You know, of course, we're going to look to the future. We want to prepare our children. But at the same time, we don't want to be blind, right? We want to be watchful. And we want to be moved and doing um, what God wants us to do. Because he's all given us work. Right, he's given us work. So that's my message today. I'm a minute over here. So let's pray and just commit this time to the Lord. And um, I trust that his word will borrow in and help you and help me to um, wait more earnestly for him and to be paying attention to what he wants to do and not our own big long list of plans of what we're going to do with our lives because you know we might not have it tomorrow I think this is a call to prepare all right so let's pray heavenly father we just do thank you for telling us the truth even though it's hard to listen to sometimes and um, there's so much we don't understand There's so much we don't understand about your character and how you have literally put up with uh, what has happened, um, what's been going on in our earth, just the murder of the babies and uh, this horrendous stuff that's happening right on the news every day. Lord, 
I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be you and to see it all at once happening all over the world and how you have been able to endure. We just give you honor and praise for it. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the truth. And we pray that you'd empower us and strengthen us, Lord. Help us to truly love one another and help each other to live godly lives because this is what you want us to do. You want us to live a holy life so that when we see our Lord Jesus and we look into his eyes, we're not going to be ashamed. We're not going to be ashamed of our lives, but we'll realize, Lord, I failed in many situations, but the best of my ability, Lord, I did what I could do for you. This is what we want, Lord, and uh, we would just ask you to help us, guide us, and show us. It's very personal to each woman, so I can't give suggestions. Each woman has to examine their hearts before you. So we just love you, and we thank you for this time we've had. And again, we just want to say Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Amen.